Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edges of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, and I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work to reconnect the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my Connectfulness Counseling Practice and our collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Robin Mallison Alpern, the Director of Training at the Center for the Study of White American Culture. Robin joins me to have a conversation about the work involved in decentering whiteness and becoming an anti-racist. Robin has a lifelong concern for racial justice and equity, and her anti-racist activism has taken a variety of forms. You can learn more about Robin and her work at euroamerican.org. Be sure to check out their online workshops. Here's the thing. In a society that is centered around whiteness but doesn't discuss it, we white people are like fish who don't see the water that we're swimming in. We're swimming in our privilege. We're the fish. The work of anti-racism is to decenter whiteness. It's to move whiteness to the margins and to cultivate a more multicultural center. But in order to get there, we must listen and learn. Make no mistake about it, this is uncomfortable work, but that discomfort is the gift. That's the feeling of being uncentered. And so I'm going to encourage you throughout this episode just to sit with those places where you feel uncomfortable and later to find communities that you can join and be a part of to sit with it some more and to find yourself in community with others. Last summer, I interviewed Resma Menekem. And for those of you who haven't already listened to that episode, I highly encourage that you go back and have a listen to it. We reference it a few times in this episode, and um, it's a really, really important discussion about white body supremacy and how um, white body supremacy affects not only white bodies, but also black bodies and police bodies and pretty much all bodies. And then a little later in the year, I had another amazing conversation with a colleague and friend, Sonia Lott. And Sonia and I talked about how we need to peel back the layers and uh, understand our own biases, our own privileges. I want to acknowledge that 
Robin and I are both white women having this conversation. And that's important to acknowledge for many reasons. One of the reasons that I chose to have this conversation with Robin is that I wanted to talk about what the journey is for white people to step into the work of anti-racism. And I hope that for those of you who might not already see how racism is rooted in our society, you can drop in and listen to this conversation. Racism is systemic, it's real. We live in a society that suppresses people of color. And we often, as white people, are able to go blind to it, to distance ourselves from it. And yet we keep perpetuating it. We sometimes don't even notice how we're perpetuating it. By becoming conscious of it, we can begin to make decisions that will help build a future where everyone is safe, where everyone is equal. You know, the opposite of being a racist is not being not racist. The opposite of being racist is being anti-racist. The work of being anti-racist is the work of constantly noticing where the biases live inside of you, of sitting in the discomfort, of sitting in what makes you uncomfortable. That's a gift. That discomfort is a gift because that's the feeling of uncentering whiteness. All right, so I'm asking you to sit with that, to sit with the places where this conversation might be uncomfortable, to allow yourself to open to it, and we'll give you a lot of resources that you can dig into in your own work. I also want to make it very clear that I feel like I'm beginning my own journey into anti-racism and still peeling away many of my own biases and that from time to time I'm going to mess up. And when I do, dear listener, please know that you're welcome to call me in and let me know. But I also don't want to burden you with doing my work for me and know that I will be learning and growing and that I have myself very many growth edges here as I'm sure we all do let's do this together I'm joined today by Robin Mallison Alpern the director of training at the Center for the Study of White American Culture Robin welcome Thanks so much, Rebecca. And you did a great job with the name of the organization I work with. <laughs> it's it is, a mouthful, not a white Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, like, help me. Um, it's a lot to say, and I think it's also a lot for some to understand. So can you help us to, to kind of break that down a little bit? I sure can. Thank you for asking. Uh, the Center for the Study of White American Culture, which we fondly call CISWEC, was founded in 1995 by an interracial couple, uh, a black woman and a white man. And they founded it because they saw that the work of anti-racism was missing a significant piece, which is the focus on whiteness. And ironically, racism is all about whiteness and white supremacy, but it is the water to the fish for most people. It's the thing we don't see, we're not allowed to name, we're not allowed to talk about. And it was the inspiration of the founders of CISWEC that we absolutely need to be naming whiteness. We need to study white American culture, the, the function of the center. 
uh, and we need to educate ourselves about how white American culture impacts individuals and the whole society. Mm, so it's, it's another aspect of looking at the whole system. Yes. And thank you for using the word system. Uh, there's no question that individuals carry prejudices and some are very overtly uh, racist prejudices that, that individuals act out of. But really the, the most giant struggle that we are up against here is the way that racism is systemic throughout our entire society from the founding of the United States of America to the present day and in every single aspect and area of life. So system, that's, that's the word. Yeah. You know, and I, I am noticing that within me, as I, as I heard you describing um, what the center is all about, that there was like that one of those things I'm starting to learn as I go down my journey of trying to be an anti-racist of not centering on the white experience. And yet in many ways, the center is kind of, well, we need to talk about this. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and why is it so important that we have these conversations so that we can break down the system and understand it? Yes, uh, that's a big question. So let me see if I can um, bite off a, a nibble of it. First of all, I just want to mark that I think I heard you say that it was difficult for you to even in the moment of listening to me to kind of center on whiteness. And, and so that's, that's very much the training and the fabric in our society is that when we do think about race and racism, we think, especially those of us who identify as white, we think about people of color. We think that race and racism is about and by and to people of color. And there's this way somehow that white people have nothing to do with it. <laughs> which of course is hugely ironic because the white community, if you will, is who created racism and who perpetuates it and who benefits from it. Yeah. So, so there's this giant disconnect going on all the time where, again, I'm speaking primarily about white identified people where we're able to um, maybe look over there and see that something is bad is happening to people of color but we are not good at all at looking at ourselves and recognizing how we fit into this. How do I as an individual collaborate with and perpetuate racism? How does my group, white people, what are we doing that keeps this going after hundreds of years? This, this part that you're talking about in regards to looking inside of ourselves, to looking at the white cultures and communities that we're a part of, this is, I'm gathering, what the center that you work for is all about? I will say, actually, that's that's a part of it. We, we have a two-part mission, and I haven't spoken about the other part of the mission. So our mission ah. is to decenter whiteness and create an anti-racist, multiracial center for society. So part of it is about that focus on understanding whiteness and figuring out how do we take whiteness and move it out of the center to the margin, not destroy it, uh, just move it to the margin. And at the same time, how do we create a new center for our society that is multiracial? So that is a, that is a, a very important piece of our mission as well. Oh, I love your mission. Multiracial and anti-racist. 
I, I, I absolutely love this mission. And, you know, I, I um, am finding myself kind of really understanding it a lot deeper now that we're talking that in order to move the whiteness out of the center and into the margin to make space for a more multiracial center, a more anti-racist center, we really need to understand first, what is this whiteness? Because how do we move it if we can't identify it? Yes, exactly. And to try to make that a little more concrete, um, I'll, I'll come back for a moment to the level of the individual. Again, it's systemic structural racism that is the, the most monumental part of the struggle, but it is important to be aware too of where racism is lodged in us as individuals. So for instance, myself as a white woman, um, it wasn't until I became anti-racist, very committedly and consciously anti-racist in about the year 2000, it wasn't until then that I became aware of the gigantic store of unconscious racism that I carry. And that's not because there's something different about me. It's because I grew up in a society that trained me from the beginning in racism. And so uh, it takes a a lot of work um, and dedication to become aware that, oh my God, I have these stereotypes that are drilled in. I have uh, feelings, emotions that have been concretized um, based on either my own experiences or what I've learned from the culture. So experiences such as, I I think it's pretty well known that uh, the example of the white woman who clutches her purse on the street when a black man crosses her path or who, you know, does the same, same thing if she's in the elevator and the black man enters. Well, maybe nothing, literally nothing may have ever happened to that white woman at the hands of a black man, but the culture has trained her to have that emotional reaction. So those are, that's sort of the kind of thing that we have to unearth and deal with. And and you, you talk about back in 2000, you committed to being an anti-racist. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that commitment was and then the journey that you've been on? Help us to understand because that you're talking about uncovering some of the stuff, but you know, and I'm, I'm very much in that journey myself. I'm also uncovering a lot of pieces of internalized racism, things that I have taken in, that I've been taught. Um, and it's, it's a lot to sit with. I'm just going to yes. name that. It's often a lot to sit with. It, it is. And of course, a, a danger is that in sitting with it, often um, we, those of us who are white, will tend to fall into, oh, poor me, or oh, how shameful, or oh, God, this is too much for me to do anything with, or a number of other places we go where we end up paralyzed. And that's no use to anybody. So, um, so sitting with can be very powerful. And we want to make sure that we have partners and resources for our sitting with this stuff so that we don't go into any of those dark, those tunnels (laughs) lead to bad places. My, my listeners might remember, I've had a few other conversations on this podcast. Um, Last year I talked to Resma Menachem and we talked a lot about somatic abolitionism. We talked about how we needed communities of um, if, if we're white, we need communities of other white people. If we're black, we need communities of other black people that we can sit with so that we're not, sitting with this together. We're not sitting with this alone. We're sitting with it together. 
Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, right away, that brings up one of the aspects of white American culture that is very salient, which is that we are trained to be rugged individualists. Mm-hmm. We do not depend or rely on others. We do things by ourselves. So just in going up against that uh, facet of our identity that we are so trained in and saying, you know what, I can't do this alone. I do need help. Uh, right there, you're actually taking an anti-racist action, if you will, to um, to go against that precept. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to step over that you asked me the story. And uh, it's a I love my story, honestly, because I love who I have become as a result of engaging with anti-racism. And it's been scary and traumatic and difficult and sad and and raging along the way and still is. But I would not for a moment trade being where I am now um, as an anti-racist. So I'll try to put it in a very small nutshell. I grew up in a Quaker family, so I feel I had a big head start because my white Quaker parents taught me that there was such a thing as racism. There's a lot of white people around me who still don't even get it that racism exists. So I at least had a a head start there. And they taught me that racism was wrong and that I should be against it. Um, So for the first about 50 years of my life, I thought of myself if I had to put a word on it as non-racist. I was not a person who, you know, practiced racism. I was not a person who would support racism. However, it wasn't until the year 2000 that uh, I took a workshop that the founders of CISWAC offered. And at that workshop is where I learned that racism isn't uh, the mean actions of a small subset of people over there. I learned that racism is systemic, as I was saying earlier, throughout our entire society and our entire history. And racism is also lodged within me, as I said earlier, in terms of my internalized unconscious processes, thoughts, and feelings. So that was a really bad blow to find out that, oh, I, I'm actually mixed up in this. This is It is mixed up in me um, and all of the white people that I know and love. But um, the way that Charlie and Jeff, uh, those are the founders, Dr. Charlie Flint and Jeff Hitchcock, the way that they presented the workshop, I walked away from it, even though I had this new understanding that was so horrifying, I also walked away clear that okay, this is not all right with me. I need to do something about it. And so since that time is when I would say I became anti-racist. I became clear that being, being, quote, not racist or non-racist, that is not good enough. That's just allowing the status quo to keep flowing around me. Uh, So I have taken my stance as an anti-racist and spent uh, the 20 years since then educating myself every way possible and uh, gradually moving into educating others around me. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm picking up a few different pieces in here that I want to um, hold with you. And one of them is that when we call ourselves non-racist, when we say I'm, I'm not a racist, we're, it's like willful blindness. We're, we're closing our eyes. We're, we're just not seeing the systems that we're a part of. We're not seeing what lives inside of us, what we've been taught. When we call ourselves an anti-racist, when we take on that title, we're committing to doing the work 
of at least noticing where that stuff lives. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be inside of me. It means that I'm saying I don't want to um, consciously allow that stuff to stay there without being looked at. Yes, absolutely right. Um, the the non-racist, that kind of is what Robin DiAngelo is talking about in her book, White Fragility, Fragility where yeah. she describes white people who become uh, virulent if you if you even hint that they might be racist uh, we just we can't tolerate that at all and yet uh, again we you know we grew up steeped in it how could we not be and that refusal to acknowledge it just means as you said that we are now blind and deaf and dumb we we certainly can't be counted upon to be part of uh, putting a stop to this right. So, so when we commit to this journey, when we, when we say, okay, here I am, I'm showing up for this and I want to be on this anti-racist journey. I want to be part of being an anti-racist. I want to break down the system. I want to expose it. I want to work towards this um, decenterization of whiteness and towards a more multicultural center. Where do we begin? <laughs> um People ask that all the time. And, you know, obviously that's a very individual thing. It depends a lot on where you are, who you are, what you've already done, who you've got around you. Um, so let's see if I could say anything kind of general. Um, one of the most important things to do is to recognize immediately that you have been lied to and deluded and misinformed and miseducated your entire life about racism. And I'm not saying that lightly. There, there are so many ways that you have been steered off the track and told not to think about this, not to see it, not to notice it. So one of the first things to do is to set about educating yourself. And where do you find that there's a good beginning for that? Well, um, again, it depends partly on your preferences. If you're a reader, there's a bazillion books out there. Um, uh, let's see. Um, I'm sorry. So my mind just kind of went okay. to, there's a bazillion books. You can, here's one. You can visit our center's website, which is www.euroamerican, all one thing, euroamerican.org. We have a bookstore we publish in addition to offering workshops and trainings. We also publish books. So we have several excellent books there. Um, and beyond that, um, Oh, so many books. I might have to come back later to think about That's the okay. exact time. You know what we can do is we can um, make sure that our show notes include some rec some resources for folks that want to start on some reading. So we'll compile them and put them in the show notes. Excellent. That sounds yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there's also a plethora of workshops. And of course, as someone who leads trainings and workshops, I'm definitely going to plug that. But honestly, there are so many programs out there now. You can probably do a Google search wherever you live and come up with what's happening in your area or online. Uh, we happen to be uh, offering Raising Anti-Racist White Children is our current workshop. And um and you know, I just want to make a plug for that. I'm, I'm signed up for it. I've gotten some friends to sign up for it. I had one of my daughter's teachers sign up for it along with me. Um, and I'll, I'll, I reached out to you before I signed up for it. And one of my questions was, well, my kids aren't white. They're mixed. Can I still take this course? 
Absolutely. In fact, um, we, we often have uh, either parents or caregivers who are looking after children who are not white, who are, who are a different racial background. Um, and I, I want to be clear, the focus of the workshop is on white children. Yes. And that's for a couple of reasons. One being that it's generally white people who most need this education. Mm-hmm. And it's generally white children who are most not getting it. Uh, so that's the reason why we want to directly reach out to that population. Yep. Um, but that said, a lot of the material that we will talk about uh, is, you know, it relates to children generally. It doesn't matter what, what racial background they are, how to, how to talk with kids about race and racism. So, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and then you have other workshops that you put on too, right? That's, that's the one that you're doing now. But I know when I first heard about you, there was another workshop, which was, I think, on being an anti-racist. Well, the one that you learned about first, I think, was decentering whiteness, that's which, of was. course, is exploring uh, more directly our mission about decentering whiteness and building multiracial communities. So we did a really a deep dive into, okay, what do those concepts mean and how can you go about it? How, how could that strategy work? So we do have that one. We also have a couple of workshops, a 101 and a 201 for fundamentals, which quite frankly, even though they cover material that we consider is foundational for doing anti-racism work, it isn't necessarily the same stuff that everybody already learned in their basics. So uh, 101 and 201 are, are very good workshops um, to take with us. I'm so excited to explore more of your offerings and, and just kind of, I know that I'll, I'll be on the mailing list, so I'll hear more about them, but I'm, I'm excited to learn more about that. Um, I hope that our listeners also take advantage of that. And I'm curious if we can t- shift the conversation a little bit to talking about what whiteness is. Um, we could, would it be okay if I say one more thing? Cause I sure. don't think I offer a very adequate answer to that question about where to begin again, because there's so many possibilities. But I just want to throw out one more. We already mentioned how important it is to work with other people. Yes. So, uh, that's another, you know, very important step is to look around and find out what groups in your area, uh, may be doing work that you can join in with and learn together with others and have folks to be in action with. So just for example, people on, in your audience may be familiar with Surge, uh, Showing Up for Racial Justice. That's a national organization. That's actually an organization that is white-focused. Um, so uh, folks of color would want to look at other organizations most likely, but if you're white, then Surge is a great place to get started. And they do have chapters around the country. Thank you for that, Robin. You're welcome. So can we um, circle back then and start talking a little bit more about what whiteness is so that we can move our listeners through this a little bit so they understand what we mean when we talk about decentering? Sure. So I'm going to say, honestly, whiteness is kind of a, a big concept that's a little bit on the amorphous side. Um, But generally, it has to do with the fact of white culture, white identity, uh, white behaviors, kind of that whole nexus. And the way that uh, that white nexus dominates our country. Right. Everywhere you go, 
uh, pretty much the, the way things are supposed to be done, the way people are supposed to behave is according to the rules of whiteness. And this is true in, in such a way that even people of color are expected to live by white rules. Um, even organizations of people of color are supposed to behave and conform to whiteness. So it's, it's not just about uh, actually white-skinned people necessarily. Right. Um, it just so happens that the, the common council in my town has, uh, including the mayor, I think there's about eight people, and the mayor himself is a black man, and I believe all but one or possibly two of the council members are people of color. However, they function in the way that a group of white people would for the most part. So that's a place where despite having numerous people of color present, whiteness, its, its ways, its norms, its rules, its values are what are running the show at the council. Can you help us to sink our teeth into this? Um, can you give us like an example of what are some of these white norms, the, the, the ways in which white culture kind of permeates? Sure. One of my favorite documents, a favorite resource is a paper called White Supremacy Culture. You can Google that. And it does not mean skinheads. It means just the culture that prevails in our country that is a culture of white supremacy. So white supremacy culture is a document that actually breaks down, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 common aspects of the culture that if you read through them all, you would pretty much find yourself going, yup, 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 that's, yup, yup. But you don't necessarily normally think of it as white culture. It's just the way things are. But when you look at it, it turns out, no, really, this is white culture. So one example I gave earlier um, was the rugged individual. You know, right. we, we got we to do everything by ourselves. Uh, another one is if it isn't written down, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Another one is urgency. White culture is very, very time-oriented, and everything has always got to be now, 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 hurry, 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 finish, 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 finish. Um, so those are, those are just three. That paper on white supremacy culture, again, has, I don't know, maybe 15 or so examples like that. And uh, I like that for each example given, there's also a quote-unquote antidote you know, what could be other ways of behaving, which is super helpful because, again, the, those aspects of white culture, for those of us especially who are white identified, they are so ingrained, it doesn't even necessarily occur to us that we could do things a different way or, or that we could value other ways of being. And, and that's the piece here because where we place our value has a lot to do with how we value others also. Yes. Right. And as I, as I'm hearing like this whole black lives matter movement, that's really what it says to me. It's that, you know, our lives have to matter. It's, it's not that white lives or other lives don't matter. It's that until black lives matter, until indigenous lives matter, until the more marginalized lives matter, we're not all mattering. That's absolutely right. And that's why we have that 
slogan, uh, Black Lives Matter, that s many white people will turn around and say, well, white lives matter. Yes, well, everybody knows that. All you have to do is look at how things are working out in this country, and it's very obvious that white lives matter. But it's equally obvious that black lives don't. You know, the, the horrible deaths that we've heard about just in this past week make it very plain that black people don't matter. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of news right now about those most recent deaths. But as yes. far as I know, the statistics are that something like every 28 hours in our country, a black or brown person is murdered by law enforcement. And we just don't hear about them. But this is happening all the time. And it's good that we are hearing about some of these incidents. But we need to remember that even when, you know, a few days go by and we don't hear about one of these murders, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. And, and you know, there, I, I think often of friends of mine who talk about the conversations, the difficult conversations that they have to have with their children that I might not have to have with my children who can pass more easily. Um, you know, conversations about being compliant, conversations about, you know, when you're a teenager and you're driving a car, where do your hands go? Um, you know, there, there are a lot of difficult conversations that um, our black and brown sisters, brothers, friends, they have to be having in their families, they have to be considering every day that that's our privilege, that we're not walking around and, and having even to have those thoughts. We're not even considering that these are things that others are walking through the world with. And because that's our privilege, it seems to me Again, I'm going to just claim my infancy on this journey of anti-racism, but it seems to me that because that's our privilege, it's also our responsibility. Like we have to respond to it. We have, we hold that privilege. Therefore we have to show up for it. Yes, absolutely. I love how you said that just now. And it takes me back to your question about um, what's the difference between a non-racist and an anti-racist. So an anti-racist is the person who has realized that as you just said, I could go basically through my whole life and never give a thought to all of this. That stuff is not happening directly to me. Uh, it's likely not happening to my family members and friends because most likely I am surrounded by white people in my life. So I could absolutely just ignore all of this stuff. But as an anti-racist, I, nope, I no longer can do that. I am now on duty 24-7 to pay attention to racism and do what I can to be acting out against it. Yeah. You yeah. said something else I wanted to pick up on there, but I might have lost what that thought was. I was um I was also mentioning responsibility there. Maybe that's the the thread. That is the word. Yes. Um so that brings up a couple of things. It brings up accountability, uh, which is a another one of those kind of big amorphous concepts, but ultimately comes down to being responsible in the work that we do. And um, white folks, when they're, especially when they're new at anti-racism, uh, often, um, and again, because we're kind of trained to take charge and to be an individual doing my rugged thing by myself, white folks will sometimes go charging off to do what they think is the right thing to do, but they haven't 
learned the territory. They haven't learned the issues. They haven't learned the people involved. They haven't learned the history. They really know very little. And so they may cause more harm than good with their actions. So accountability is about uh, learning to reckon with that. No, I'm, I'm an actor in a, in a system. Uh, I'm part of a movement. I need to make sure that my actions are not going to cause more harm and hopefully are going to bring more good to the community. So as you, as you outline that, Robin, one of the things that I'm kind of just aware of inside myself is how much education sort of is at the front end of it. It's probably throughout the entire process, the, all of the work, the lifetime of work of being an anti-racist, but it's also, there's a lot of education at the front end because if we don't, open up in terms of that education, then, then we don't even see the system. We don't see the places where we might be causing harm. There's a lot of yeah. kind of like, kind of like unschooling. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely right. So, uh, and you know, that does bring up a dynamic tension because on the one hand, yes, you do need to learn as much as you can, as fast as you can. And there's so much to learn. And at the same time, um, you don't want this to turn into another reason to become paralyzed, to sit right. still and do nothing. So here again, I would kind of circle back to that advice to get involved in groups uh, yeah. if you possibly can, even if they are online groups, if that's, if you haven't got something local, well, and nobody can do anything local right now, really. <laughs> but, um, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but be involved with groups so that you have folks to, be teaching you and working together with you and coaching you. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say one more thing about responsibility, which is that uh, that is also the antidote to the guilt and shame that white people will often feel. Uh, you know, a, a lot of white people won't even come to this conversation because it so immediately evokes mostly unconscious shame and guilt about what's happened. And so it's super important for white people engaging anti-racist work to recognize that a, a different choice between allowing our shame and guilt to overwhelm us is to accept responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you were talking about earlier. So that choice to say, okay, you know, I'm not happy about this. I regret any part in it that I have played and am playing, but I'm not going to get stuck and focus there because that will render me useless. Instead, I'm going to focus on it's part of my responsibility as a beneficiary of this system. It's part of my responsibility to do everything I can to take it down. Yes. I, I am. I'm thinking of, of the work I do every day with clients in my office. I work mostly with couples and individuals. And so much of the work that, I, that I'm doing with my clients is around um, what, I would, what we call rightful assignment of responsibility. It's around mm. looking at, in many ways, childhood traumas and how they're acting out in their adult life and in their adult relationships. And I think that being an anti-racist is... A similar journey. It's about looking at um, where did this come from? Where did I learn this? How did this message get in? And the shame that I'm feeling, is it mine or is it the people that taught it to me? Right. And, and to reassign that, the shame part of it, and to take on the responsibility for taking action to being our best selves, to doing this differently. 
Yes. So I have to admit the um, what that brought up for me yeah. is that historically and not that long ago, um, white people have actually used that argument against people of color to put them down further. So I think oh. everything that you just said is correct and healthy. But and there it's is been a way, twisted in another way. Exactly. So it's yeah. important for people to recognize that uh, saying that uh, black people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that kind of thing. Um, and well, gee, you know, uh, my kid w- faced this and that uh, difficulty, but they prevailed and got a Harvard scholar, you know, that yeah, kind no, of thing. I, I totally 100% hear, hear, hear that now that you're saying it. And I know when I was saying it, I was speaking of white people in terms of that responsibility. Um, yeah. but you're 100% right to clarify that. I, I need to be careful there. And I think this is my own learning edge. Well, and again, I think that everything that you said was correct and healthy. It's that um, many times in doing anti-racism work, we have to hold a few different things in tension. Mm -hmm. So for instance, for us as white people, we need to hold intention that on the one hand, uh, yes, I have internalized white superiority. um, And that's a fact about me and something that I need to deal with. And it's also true that I am, if you will, the victim of white supremacy to the extent that that culture trained me and taught me and drilled this evil stuff into me. So those are both true. Both true. And again, uh, the important thing is for me to take responsibility for all of it. I may not like it. I may not have chosen it. I may not want it, but that's the way it is. And I get to take responsibility. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back again to my conversation with Resmo Menekem last year sure. and, um, and the way in which we talked and he talked about, you know, whether we um, historically our ancestors were the oppressors or the oppressed that, yes. that either, either, or, or end both, it all lives inside of us. Yes. Yes. I, I am convinced of that. I saw a brilliant diagram that was based on Resma Menachem's work. I don't know if he created the diagram or somebody condensed it, but it was something about the 1,000-year trauma of white people might have been the name of it, something like that. And um, yeah, it, when you look at the history of the people who are now called white, terrible, terrible, terrible things happened to us. And for the most part, we're not educated about that either. So it's it's not in our conscious awareness. But I am very open to that it's in our DNA. I've, I've heard yeah. that there are studies and research uh, demonstrating that trauma remains and passes down in the DNA. And so, again, that's not to give us a pass by any means, but it does help us to understand some deep things like, oh, my gosh. Could that be why white people do the sick stuff that we do? Well, I think it could have to do with what happened. Yeah. And there's so much that lives inside of all of us that we we don't necessarily know, that we're not necessarily aware of, that is an unconscious pattern that's playing out. And that's what much of this work is. It's about bringing that to our awareness. It's about getting... Um, getting clear on 
what that system is that's that we're a part of that we're playing into. Yeah, I totally agree. Awareness is so incredibly key to all of this. And it sounds kind of simple, um, simple in the sense of, oh, what difference could that make? But I know what a huge difference it makes to me when I just walk through my town, which is a very multiracial town, and have awareness of all the different thoughts and feelings and impressions and memories that are rising up for me as I cross paths with people of different races. And if I didn't have awareness of my own patterns there, and if I didn't have awareness of history and you know what may have been some of the experiences of the people I encounter based on history, based on identities, I would behave really differently. Yeah. And it's not to say, I'm not saying for a moment that I always get it right. I do not mean to say that, but I definitely get it different from what I would have if I were clueless. Well, I'm 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 listening to you and I'm thinking of my own awarenesses and, and how they've shown up and where they've shown up and the moments that I've had with with different people, some people that I've known, some people that are strangers that I pass on the street that I have momentary interactions with, and just how when my awareness shows up the moments change. Sometimes my awareness doesn't show up. And this is just like in my own relationship with my spouse. Sometimes awareness doesn't show up until after the fact. And yet sure. it changes then something inside of me, which helps me for sure. future interactions. So um, there are times where I catch myself and I go, oh, oh, I wish I could have done something a little yeah. different there. Or, um, And then, you know, it's one of those like, okay, you know, I can still hold myself warmly and remind myself of where I can do better. Like that's what I'm going for. That's what I want in many aspects of my life. I don't want to beat myself up. I don't want to beat you up. I want that we both matter, that we are enough. We're abundant and we're imperfect. And so those imperfections are reminders of places where we want to grow. And this is when I catch myself in one of those moments, it's, I'm not giving myself a pass. I'm catching myself and reminding myself of where to grow. Yes. And awareness has a way of building awareness, right? Yes. The, the yes. more you raise your level of awareness, right? It's, it's like when you buy a red car and all of a sudden all the other cars are red. It's the same way. So yes. <laughs> the more I pay yeah. attention yeah. to whether it's systemic racism or whether it's my internalized racism, uh, the more I pay attention to it, the more I see and recognize and the more I see out in the world too. And then that helps me also when I, when I can recognize that, Oh, there's a white person who is coming from their internalized racial superiority. And that helps me think about, you know, how can I be an ally to that person and help them move to a healthier place because I'm aware of what's happening for them. Yeah. I'm thinking a little bit too of, um, of that awareness cycle and of how, as it's growing, there's all these edges of discomfort. There's all these edges of, of learning how to lean in and soften and look at the self and how that's often the places where we want to put up walls and run away from because it, it feels unfamiliar. It doesn't feel comfortable and we have to get comfortable in that space. That was another piece that Resma talked a lot about was doing those reps, doing the things that are uncomfortable, just getting in that space and doing it over and over and over again. Yes. 
uh, doing reps. Uh, that's a great analogy. And when you were saying uh, earlier about having an awareness that comes after the fact, you can think of that as one of your reps. You know, that's not wasted that you realized after the interaction, oh, that might have been hurtful or, oh, I could have done this better. That's part of your gaining resilience and strength and resource. You know, the next time you're in a similar situation and you can count on it, you will be in similar situations again. Um, you'll, you'll already have practiced a little bit your awareness and your possibilities for different reaction. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking a little bit about the work that we do inside of ourselves. We're talking about breaking down and understanding, re-educating ourselves to understand the system. Can you help us bring this back to a more multicultural center and understand that part of this too? Sure. So let's see. Again, um, let's keep in mind that the entire country is founded upon and structured with racism. Yes. So there is no shortage of places to work. Therefore, start where you are. You, no matter who you are and what you do in your life, you are already embedded in a number of systems, institutions, groups. Um, so pick any of those and start looking to see, okay, what can I learn here about how racism is present. Right. How is white supremacy operating in my school, uh, at my place of business? How is it present at the library I frequent? Where is it in the grocery store where I shop? Um, and again, hopefully you are involved with anti-racist groups and perhaps they've already got projects going. Um, maybe they're already working on approaching City Hall about the racist hiring policies, um, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so know that it's that it's everywhere, and that you can do something about it. That's the the most important thing to know. Maybe is that you actually can do something about it. Even though I use some some pretty big words earlier about, you know, how monumental it is and so on, which it is, but at the same time, it's human beings who keep it going. Right. And it's human beings who can intervene and say, okay, enough already. Yeah. You know, no more of this, not on my watch. And all of those little movements that we make, all of the little ways and that we look inside of ourselves, that we notice our interactions, they are, they are movement. When you say movement, it just uh, takes me, being selfishly and self-centeredly me, it takes me immediately to some of the movements that I've been involved in personally. And so the two most important areas have been in my town, where I belong to an anti-racist collaborative that has, in fact, approached City Hall. That's how I know the example about the whiteness of the council, because I've seen how they responded to our um, years of trying to work for racial justice and equity. Uh, so that's one thing I think about. Uh, and then I also think about the Quaker community. I mm. mentioned I was raised Quaker and I'm still passionately Quaker and very involved in Quaker life and community where I belong to a few different groups who are anti-racist. And so, you know, in, in both of those communities, um, 
I have seen our groups taking steps that actually led to change. And it didn't end racism, right? It, it didn't take down the structure, not so far, but we have seen positive changes as a result. Um, one in the Quaker community is that uh, I'm in New York State and uh, we were successful in having the Quaker organization that basically is New York State's Quakers issue an apology to Afro-descendants for slavery. Mm. And we are sadly today, as far as I know, still the only Quaker organization in the United States that has done that. A number of organizations and even the United States itself has issued an apology to people of African descent for slavery and the slave trade and its aftermath. Um, but a lot of people have not said any such thing. But anyway, so we were successful in um, supporting our organization to make that apology. So that's, that's an example of something. Yeah. That can that's, and, and, and it's a, making these statements is, is important. When we make statements, we help people understand if we're safe communities, if we're safe places for them. And that is progress. Well, and the work that we did over eight years to get that document approved mm -hmm. was very important threshing work in yeah. our Quaker community for people to just even begin to broach these issues and to move from well, you're talking about something that happened hundreds of years ago and I had nothing to do with it to, oh, I now see how people today are living the consequences of yeah. the enslavement of Africans hundreds of years ago. I now see that it is still present. It never ended. It's not over and in the past. And I'm involved in it. And yeah, I apologize. And and that process that you're describing there, that's what makes the community safer. Yes. It's not issuing the statement. It's the process that's behind the statement. Yes. Yep. People can know that, all right, for one thing, this is a community where people talk about race and racism and work to be anti-racist. And that right there is, is such a change from everyday U.S. society. Yes. Robin, thank you. Like that, that is a great example. That is a great um, way just to kind of metabolize how we can bring this work into our, into our lives and into our communities and, you know, the ripple effect that this work could possibly have. Thank you. It's also a challenge because frankly, it's now um, hmm, three years at least since we issued the apology and we have yet to do our formal next step. I mean, we haven't been sitting around doing nothing all that time, but a, an obvious next step would be, well, what about reparations? Okay, you said you were sorry. Now, what are you going to do to fix it? Mm -hmm. How we correct this? So we have not yet as a community engaged that question. And so that's, that's a next step that I am looking forward to helping us take. It is, it is a, that is a huge step to even begin that conversation and then to dive into it and to, to witness where that process takes you on the other side. Mm -hmm. Thank you for leading your community there. You're welcome. 
it is a huge step. And again, one reason that people hang back um, is because of their fears. Yeah. Uh, and for white people, their shame and their guilt. Um, that gets in the way so much. But once they begin to take steps, I think a lot of people do begin to discover that this is not only about making life a joyful, happy, successful place for people of color. It's also about liberating ourselves as white people from that shame and guilt and trauma and rage and fear and everything else. It's about freeing ourselves to live our fully human lives. That is, that is really, really big. And I, I want to blow that part up. I want to really amplify mm. the message that you're sharing there, that there's many sides of this work. And we're not only talking about liberation of one race, we're talking about kind of liberation of all races, where those who are stuck in the shame of um, carrying the shame of being white, carrying the shame of what ancestors may have done or others who look like them, may, how they have, may have oppressed others, that by doing this work, we're also letting go. We're transmuting, we're transforming, we're shifting the legacy. We're changing the story. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. As humans, we're meant to live in joy and in community and in love. I believe those are spiritual facts. <laughs> I agree with you. And I, I think that so often the, the joy and the love and the community, it, it also entwines with grief. That grief often has a place there. Um, you know, we, we grieve when we love. We um, can experience um, joy when we can also to some extent, feel the pain that mm. comes on the other side. These things are somewhat entwined as much as we are um, meant to have these joyful experiences and connections. Grief and pain sometimes are often the things that connect us, that bring us together and um, to help us really to see and understand each other. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And they certainly are things that remind us yes. that uh, something did happen. And maybe it's something that uh, I just have to accept. And maybe it's something where I know I have a responsibility to do something to repair damage. Yeah. yeah. What would be um, the message that you want folks who are listening to today's podcast to really take to heart, to really take home with them? Mm. And let me specify it. I'm, um, our listeners are of all different races. What would you like our white listeners to take home from today's conversation? I would love for white listeners to say yes. <laughs> yes, I am a good white person. And as a good white person, what I'm going to do is commit myself to do away with racism in my lifetime <laughs> in community with other anti-racists, again, not by myself, but I am committing myself 
that this matters for myself personally, for my own humanity and health and happiness. And it matters for everyone else on the planet. So I am committing myself from this moment going forward to do everything I can for racial justice and equity. And knowing that to the extent that we work on that particular form of oppression, it also spreads into helping us learn how to overcome all other manifestations of oppression as well. So I'm really doing it all. (laughs) I love that. Thank you, Robin. And thank you for joining us here today. I just want to reiterate that um, folks can share, share again your website where folks can find your work and the center's work. Sure. It's www.euroamerican, and that's all one word, E-U-R-O, American, euroamerican.org. Wonderful. And you can find out about our current webinar there and our books and other resources. So good. Thank you so much and future trainings that you may be having as well. Thank you so very much. I'm so grateful for your time and your energy. Oh, thank you very much, Rebecca. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. A reminder, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. Learn more about my counseling practice, intensives, and our collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. Listeners often ask how they can support the ongoing production of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Truly, the best way that you can is to simply subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I want to express deep gratitude for Sarah and Chris Farris, the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for the Connectfulness Practice Podcast, which was recorded and mixed at Kidneystone Studio. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.